Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. It is April the 22nd, 2022. Lots of two twos in that. How time flies. Nine years ago. Did a really interesting show. One of my favorite shows, actually, when uh, the Keenon show was on TechCrunch uh, with my guest today. Uh, what's the big deal about big data? It was based on the then best-selling book, Big Data, a revolution that will transform how we live, work, and think by Victor Meyer Schoenberger and Kenneth Kukier. Uh, I've done several shows actually since then, both with Victor and Ken. And Victor has a new book out, Access Rules, Freeing Data from Big Tech for a Better Future. It's the other bookend, I think, to Big uh, Data. Uh, Victor is joining me from the mountains of Austria, just south of Salzburg, uh, Sound of Music Territory. Victor, uh, nine years ago, we talked about big data. Have Has the technology industry uh, over the last nine years, has it broken your heart? Have you given up hope? Uh, it, you, you're the subtitle of big data um, was a revolution that will transform how we live, work, and think. I think the jury in your book was out about whether that revolution would be a good or a bad thing. It seems from your new book that you've concluded it's it's been generally a rather bad thing. Is that fair? Well, uh, Andrew, you had it right uh, before I did uh, uh, about the internet uh, and about some of the developments, some of the dynamics. Uh, that we have witnessed over the last decade or so. Um, but the key point here with respect to big data is that we we really thought that big that data and data analytics and basing uh, decisions on evidence was a way by which humanity could make better decisions and could learn. Unfortunately, the learning is incredibly slow. And what we have seen is that it has slowed to a snail's pace, particularly at the Silicon Valley where innovation is talked about, but not or hardly ever these days actually done. Yeah, I was looking at TechCrunch today. I actually did a, a show earlier today with um, John Thornhill, the innovations editor at the FT. Um, and TechCrunch led, this was not the kind of thing that TechCrunch would lead with nine years ago, uh, but TechCrunch led with a, a piece on Obama who gave a uh, a, a speech uh, yesterday suggesting that social media is well designed to destroy democracies. Are you in the Obama camp now, Victor? Uh, is social media destroying or threatening to destroy our democracies? You are in Central Europe, in Austria, where the destruction of, of democracy um, is all too relevant. I was just in Hungary, your neighbor, um, couple of weeks ago, democracy seems to have been destroyed there or in the process of being destroyed. Can we blame big data, social media for that? And should I be talking about social media and big data in the same sentence or are they different? Well, th th I, I think it, that's exactly what it boils down to. Social media as an application, social media as a platform uh, has some very troubling features, very troubling qualities. And we know that 
Um, unfortunately, we haven't done much or enough about it. But there is, and that is the core argument of access rules, there is another further, perhaps even bigger danger looming. And that bigger danger is that as uh, access to information is so unevenly distributed that uh, a few monopolistic uh, online platforms have so much data, they have cornered the ability to innovate. And even they are not that innovative anymore. And that has huge consequences, not just for the economy, for competition, but also for society and for society's capability to deal with the challenges that we face today. The vision that seems to be coming true, you suggest in Access Rules, is the one articulated at about the same time you wrote Big Data by Peter Thiel, who glorified the idea of monopolies. Now, he was doing it for his own polemical reasons in part, but there was some truth to the book, uh, One to Zero, and that's the one that seems to have been realized. Uh, technology hasn't democratized. It's enabled democracies. It's created this winner-take-all culture, economy, political world where the loudest voices, the deepest pockets win and, ev and the rest of us lose. Is that fair, Victor? Uh, yes, to an extent that is fair. And it's it's something that um, Josef Schumpeter, the um, economist that really looked at uh, and, 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 and talked about innovation very profoundly, um, was- Another Austrian, good. Victor. You, you, we, yeah, we, you need he to wave the Austrian Austria. flag. <laughs> I do. But, but Schumpeter, um, uh, when, he, when he taught at Harvard, he was particularly worried uh, that um, capital was highly concentrated uh, and uh, that, uh, therefore, uh, only a few very large companies would survive. Fortunately, there was enough capital available after the Second World War to many startups. So it's not the capital concentration that is troubling me. What is troubling me greatly the, today is the concentration of data uh, because an idea is no longer enough in our times. We often need data to transform the idea, particularly in the digital uh, scene, uh, for, to, to transform the idea into a product or a service. Well, let's talk specifically about data in the context of one company that's very much in the news today, Twitter, Elon Musk. He's making, continues to make noise, according to the Financial, financial Times, about buying um, buying Twitter. Uh, John Thornhill thinks that much of what Musk has done, to use a Thornhill's words, is dumb. But certainly Musk is very smart, perhaps in a rather dumb way. Um, how does... Twitter and Musk play out in your argument in access rules. Are you suggesting that Twitter is a new monopolist of data? And why is that a bad thing? Well, yes, as a, as a platform, they control a very important bottleneck of information flow. And so they collect a lot of data. I'm less worried about them collecting data than I'm worried in the long term that others don't have access to the data. No startup, no smaller companies, uh, no competitors ha have access to that data. And so it's incredibly hard for competitors to build up a competing service 
or a complementary service? Why is Google still the number one search engine? Not because people don't have ideas of how to build a better search engine, but because they don't have access to enough training data, uh, enough training data to build the search index and to build the predictive algorithms that uh, Google is famous for. Well, let's use the example then of Google, um, which is a very intriguing one. Back in 1998, two graduate students at Stanford University audaciously decided to essentially hijack the Stanford University servers to download the entire internet, thereby creating the intelligence for Google. Um, it's impossible to catch up with that now. They're so far ahead. I mean, that was that was more than 20, that was 25 years ago, Victor. They have so much data, so much information, so much intelligence. How can, borrowing from, um, borrowing from the subtitle of your new book, Access Rules, how can we free data from Google for a better future? Because I think you and I and most of our viewers will agree that you know, Google's a great service and we use it all the time but it's in nobody's interest except the investors and employees of Google for it to be essentially an informational monopoly. Indeed, that's what it is. And uh, Andrew, I, I fear both of us are old enough to remember the 1990s and when there was Lycos and Yahoo and then there was Northern Light and then Google came out and that was pretty much it afterwards. There was no uh, true competitive search engine innovation ever since. Uh, the, the, the problem is, of course, access to data. And you don't need to have access to all of the data uh, or the entire search index uh, that, that Google has. You need to have access to some of it. Uh, and uh, by uh, forcing Google to open the, the data troves, you're not taking anything away from Google other than the monopoly status that they have. And that's something that actually should be taken away from them uh, because we need more competition and we need broader innovation in the economy. Victor, you mentioned Lena Khan, who's the head of the FCC now in the US, um, a very aggressive anti-monopolist. You also talk about Margaret Vestager, the EU commissioner, um, who was also was the first politician to really take on the, the giants, particularly Google. Um, an apple. Is this something that only government can do, freeing the data for everyone? Or can it be done by startups? Well, startups don't have a lot of power at the moment, even if they have some capital. Um, and, uh, and if they approach Google and say, you know what, Google, why don't you grant us access to the data that you have or some of it, and we'll pay for it. Why should Google accept it? Google has a money printing machine. Uh, so they don't need the money. Uh, they could just uh, uh, as well say no, because otherwise they might create a new competitor. That's precisely what we have been seeing over the last 20 years emerge in the Silicon Valley. 20 years ago, 75% studies have shown uh, of, of successful startups um, have IPO'd, have gone public. Today, 75% of successful startups are being bought up by the large monopolistic platform. Right, and you note that in the, it's, yeah. the, it's the classic, I, I talked 
John Thornhill earlier about the exit strategy for Sifted, which is a publication. It's a different conversation. But the real exit strategy in Silicon Valley out here, talking to you from San Francisco, is, as you say, being bought by Google or Amazon or Facebook. Uh, you talk in the book about Facebook's acquisition of Instagram and WhatsApp, which at the time seemed insane, now actually makes a lot of sense. Um, so, so what do we need to do, Victor? Do we need more aggressive laws? Um, can Alina Khan or a Margaret Vestica, can they free the data from data monopolists like Google? They could if they understand the pro- if they would understand the problem correctly. I fear that uh, what what's happening in Brussels and in Washington uh, right now is basically just throwing conventional antitrust uh, law at the problem. That's not gonna that's not gonna change things. You mean, um, uh, sorry to jump in here, um, Victor. So basically, arguing that these companies should be broken up. So classic, uh, classic uh, ways of dealing with monopolies in the 19th and 20th century. Indeed. And look what happened with AT&T. We broke it up in the 1980s and it's back uh, in, in, in full force. Why? Because we haven't focused on the underlying dynamic that made these monopolies be what they are. But you have mm-hmm. another model in the book of the breakup of AT&T, the, the, the earlier version of AT&T, which you see uh, as the model. Perhaps you might talk about that. Absolutely, with great pleasure. Because the interesting thing is that the breakup of AT&T didn't work. And that's the kind of recipe that we hear today in Washington. What did work, however, in the 1950s when when AT&T was sued by the U.S. government for antitrust violation uh, and they agreed on a consent decree, uh, was that that AT&T would open up its patent uh, uh, trove uh, from Bell Labs and let every American company have access to the patents without having to pay license fees. That was the transistor patent, uh, uh, that was uh, uh, laser, microwave. All of that jump-started a a, a competitive market that drove innovations in the digital and computer industry and literally created Silicon Valley. You'll have entrepreneurs out here, defenders of the status quo, who will say, well, we give out our APIs. Isn't that enough? Is it, do we need to get beyond APIs, Victor? It needs yes. to be uh, a completely, you're, you're arguing for a completely open intellectual climate when it comes to the sharing of data. Yes, I do. Uh, first of all, uh, just, you know, t- take Google. Uh, 10 years ago, a little over 10 years ago, they, they bought a company called ITA for a billion dollars just for the data, uh, basically. Um, and uh, the, the Justice Department stepped in and said, yes, you can do that, but only if you let others, including direct competitors, have access to that data uh, for a period of time. And Google said, okay, we'll do that. They opened up the data to competitors until the clock was out, until that time was over. And the very next day, they closed up the API. So we cannot rely on the goodwill of the big monopolistic platforms. Uh, there, there needs to be 
clear rules and clear guardrails. Um, and, 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 and we need a, a broader, uh, I, I think, uh, a, a cultural understanding that what brought Silicon Valley forward in the 1960s and 70s and 80s was an open mindset, a transparent mindset, a, a tinkering, a combination of competition and, 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 and collaboration, uh, rather than a siloed mindset of propertization that, that really characterized uh, Route 128 uh, and characterizes many of the monopolistic companies today. Yeah, and you are one of the people you talk to in some detail. And I know as a friend of yours is Annalise Saxinian, who is an expert on Route 128 as well as um, Silicon Valley. We are talking with Victor um, Meyer Schoenberger, uh, the Austrian, Anglo Austrian uh, writer on technology, teaches at Oxford University, is lucky enough to be just outside Salzburg in the hills right now, uh, enjoying the Austrian mountains. Uh, Victor, we're going to take a short break. And afterwards, I want to come back and talk about your reading of Web3 and whether it might be an opportunity uh, to open up data in the way that you're describing in Access Rules. So we'll be back in 60 seconds with Victor Meyer Schoenberger, the co-author of Access Rules. Hi, everyone. Andrew here again. I'm not sure if you're listening or watching or even reading about this Keenon show. I certainly hope you're enjoying it. But I wanted to remind you that there are many different ways you can use to enjoy my Keenon show. The first, of course, is by, in a very traditional way, subscribing to the audio-only podcast. You can do this um, using Apple or Spotify or CastBox or many of the other traditional uh, podcast distribution platforms. We're on all of them. And if you want to access uh, all the podcasts together, you can go to my LitHub page um, in their podcast section, which is dedicated to all the interviews. Uh, if you're into watching this, as opposed to simply listening, um, if you follow me on Twitter at AJ Keen, you can watch these shows live uh, and you can do the same um, if we're connected uh, on LinkedIn. I'm not on Facebook. I'm not a great fan of Facebook, but LitHub is. And on their LitHub live page, you can watch these shows live as well. Um, in terms of uh, recorded videos, uh, not live, you can see all the shows on the LitHub YouTube page. So whatever your preference, whatever your taste, whether it's video or audio or text, there's no excuse for not watching or listening to my show. Now back to Keynote. We're back with Victor Meyer Schoenberger, the co-author of Access Rules, a really interesting new book, uh, Freeing Data from Big Tech for a Better Future. Victor, the first half you talked about Joseph Schumpeter, the great um, Austrian theorist of capitalism. Didn't Schumpeter, though, argue that uh, disruption was inevitable within capitalism, that it didn't eventually end up in monopolies? Because... Some Silicon Valley people will be watching this and say, well, 
technology can fix this. I mean, Teal might even say that. Uh, we've done some shows, for example, on Web3 and crypto and the increasingly decentralized nature of technology. What's your sense, Victor, of Web3 in terms of freeing data? Can that realize it? You talked about the late 1990s on the... Um, on the uh, on the verge of the Web 2.0 revolution, which was led by Google, wouldn't Web 3 simply replace the Googles and Amazons and Facebooks of the world with new kinds of companies? Well, um, you know, sometimes I feel like history loops uh, of sorts, and Schumpeter must have felt the same. Um, in in the 1920s and the 1930s, yes, he did believe in disruption. Uh, but then in the 1940s, um, uh, when he looked at the world, he became much delusioned and reverted back to his earlier views um, of uh, a very large monopolistic uh, economic uh, behemoths uh, basically running the economy uh, with no disruption happening. And I feel somewhat similar. Uh, you know, in the in the 1990s, gosh, I'm too old. In the 1990s, everybody talked about how the web would uh, democratize everything because everybody has a web page. And in the noughties, we heard that social media would democratize everything because everybody can post even those that don't have web pages. Um, and we now with, you know, web 3.0 or 3. whatever, um, hearing the same story over again, it seems to me that technology cannot fix societal dynamics of information power and the imbalance of information power. And um, as much as technology offers us great tools in one direction or another, it's for us to choose which direction we are going rather than let technology uh, take the driver's seat. Victor, do we need to beware of relying too much on technology to solve these big problems of society? You seem to be suggesting that. I had last week Bina Amanath, uh, um, a management consultant on the show, runs a big AI institute who argues that AI can finally solve the problems of diversity. Should, be, should we be wary of using new technologies like AI to fix age-old social, political, cultural problems? Absolutely. Tom Standage had a, a wonderful book out on the Telegraph as being the Victorian internet. Uh, and uh, he is recounting how people in the 19th century thought that war was now uh, banished uh, from the surface of, of the earth because people could talk with each other uh, through the Telegraph. Now, we have seen how that uh, developed uh, and, uh, and 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 we, we see it over and over again. Ken and I uh, wrote a book not long ago, Framers, because we, we, we were worried that people looked at data and technology and said, we don't need humans anymore because uh, data and technology, particularly artificial intelligence, um, can provide us with all the solutions. That only works if the future is like the past, if yesterday um, is uh, the same as tomorrow. If it isn't, we need uh, the human ability to dream uh, and to come up with novel solutions. And I'm worried uh, that uh, too much technology uh, um, may um, 
impede our capability to dream. But your solution is ultimately technological in access rules. You're suggesting that if we do indeed free data from big tech, you'll have small tech doing good things. Is that fair? Uh, yes, but it's not technology that solves the problem. Technology um, that is access to data um, will enable humans to solve the problem through innovation. I still bank on ideas. I still bank that great ideas with the help of data as the uh, appropriate resource will be able to be transformed into innovations. And again, once again, it's us humans who have to do the heavy lifting. It's not going to be technology. What are you seeing, Victor, that you're encouraged with? Um, your critique is an important one, but many others have made similar critiques. You note at the beginning of your book, Reliance on Shoshana Zuboff's The Age of Surveillance Capitalism, which has been enormously influential. Um, what are you seeing that encourages you? Are you seeing any startups, any government initiatives that get the problem? Yes, I do. And in fact, we even saw it in action during the pandemic. The fact is that uh, the, the virus was sequenced within two weeks and then made the, the, the virus sequence information was made publicly accessible through the internet to the entire research community. That enabled the folks at the NIH to develop the, the key element of the Moderna vaccine within 72 hours. It is the free flow of data, the, the open access to data that enabled us to respond to the pandemic within 12 months and develop a vaccine rather than the usual 10 years. It's interesting you say that in terms of Google, for example, which is about as accurate a window into the human condition, into society as anything we have. Um, people at Google might say, well, you can already use Google. You can do searches. What, what else do you need? What needs to be specifically, Victor, what needs to be revealed in Google that they aren't currently revealing? You know, Andrew, the interesting thing is I don't know and they don't know. And that's the, that's the entire point. The entire point is that neither Google nor I own and monopolize all of the good ideas. All the good ideas are, are evenly spread uh, throughout our societies. There is a lot of entrepreneurs and, 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 and startup folks perhaps out yeah, but there. I, right I understand now. that. I take that. That's given. But, but, but what is it about what what is it that Google is not showing the world? You can use the the Google search engine. Uh, there are all sorts of ways that you can learn about intelligence, collective intelligence from Google. What is it that Google isn't sharing that it should? Is it its black box, which is its secret source? It's like asking Coca Cola to to publish the recipe of its um, of its drink to the world, and then it no longer has any value. Well, my hope is that the, uh, that Google's black box uh, is actually its algorithm or its algorithms on on how it uh, picks out the, the, the right entries from its large search index to show as results. Um, if 
if in fact Google's black box is just this data, then it should not be a monopoly and should not hold such a, uh, a, a tremendously powerful position. But if its um, value comes from the algorithm, it should then it, Google shouldn't be worried about letting others access uh, the, the search index data that it has, because that gives others the opportunity to come up with a different algorithm and potentially a better one. You know, Google has in Gmail uh, a, a grammar and uh, typo or spell checker. Do we know it's the best spell checker? I mean, sometimes I'm getting extremely annoyed at it. And I wonder why hasn't that spell checker gotten better over the last 10 years or so? And I think I am sure that an entrepreneur and a startup company somewhere out there might have a better idea to do that, but they will never succeed because they don't have enough training data. That needs to stop. Uh, we need to broaden the, 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 the innovative base. And if you say that's a given, everybody understands that, talk to the folks at Google. They don't. Well, I will have to talk to the folks at Google. Um, Victor, you also bring up Uber and these other supposed sharing companies in the sharing economy. The Web 2.0 model was that you had a central organization like Uber, raised a lot of capital, connected drivers who they quote unquote employed with riders. The Web 3 revolution promises to do away with that middleman. It, it enables riders and drivers to directly connect. Is that realistic or is that another pipe dream? Well, in certain areas, it may be uh, absolutely um, realistic. Uh, uh, distributed ledger technology is a very smart and very interesting technology. And I strongly believe there are better uses for it than just uh, creating digital currency. Uh, the interesting element of it, of Web3 uh, and, uh, for example, digital ledger um, technology, is that it is distributed, that it is decentralized, and that it lives in a, in a very diverse universe. These are all features or qualities, if you want, uh, that are helpful and useful in a world that has broad access to data. Um, because we, we don't want broad access to data and then still have technological bottlenecks uh, so that the monopolists can continue to control what we do with the data. Uh, in that sense, Web3 is helpful. The question is, is it going to be sufficient? And there, I think the answer is no, we need government regulation and we need a different kind of mindset in a lot of the companies on how they operate and uh, work with data. Well, there you have it. We do need government intervention, according to Victor Meyer Schoenberger in his new book, Access Rules, Freeing Data from Big Tech for a Better Future. But it's the different kind of government activity. It's not the classic antitrust uh, intervention. It's being more creative, more entrepreneurial, more innovative. Uh, Victor, what else, in addition to your new book, Access Rules, what else should people be reading in these strange times in April 2022? You know, I, I just recently read a book that totally fascinated me. It was called, or is called Mine, How the Hidden Rules of Ownership Control Our Lives by Michael Heller and James Saltzman. Yeah, and they were on the show, actually. It's a very good book. It's an interesting oh, it's, idea. 
fantastic, uh, fantastic uh, way of taking a very complex problem, property, and explaining it so lucidly and so well. I just learned a lot by by by, by reading it. Mm, it's a good book and it's a good interview, Victor. Finally, uh, Victor Meyer Schoenberger, the co-author of both Big Data, Access Rules, many other books, teaches at Oxford. Uh, lucky enough to be in the mountains of Austria right now, Victor. Who? runs the world these days on 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 april 22nd 2022 oh there's clearly just one answer emojis <laughs>